With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 328. It's titled... Are you underweight Chinese stocks? Should you be? I recently got an email from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He lives in Switzerland, but grew up in Asia. He mentioned that he has been a long-term investor in China. And as he analyzed his Chinese equity investments in 2020, he noticed that they didn't fall as much as stocks in other countries and the currency held its value relative to the U.S. dollar. He went to look at his overall exposure to China. He's trying to calibrate it within his portfolio. He noticed that relative to the size of the Chinese economy, which is the second largest in the world, that he was underweight Chinese stocks. In fact, the major stock indices, MSCI, All Country World Index, has 5.2% in China. Yet China's gross domestic product, the monetary value of their output is over 16% of global GDP. He was trying to figure out, well, what should his weight be? He's primarily getting his performance through an A-share ETF. China A-shares are stock shares that trade on mainland China. And they trade in the local Chinese currency, the yuan. They trade on the Shanghai Stock Exchange and the Shenzhen Stock Exchange. Historically, these Chinese A shares are only available to domestic investors. But since 2003, China has allowed certain institutional investors to acquire license to be able to purchase some of these Chinese A share stocks. For example... Back in 2015, Vanguard was first allowed to buy these Chinese A-share stocks, up to $1.5 billion. It was at that time they added Chinese A-shares to their Emerging Market Stocks Index Fund and ETF. Trading in A-shares has typically been dominated by local Chinese investors, and returns have been volatile. In 2020, though, they gained 41%. Incredible performance. It was the result of the Chinese economy performing better than any developed or developing economy in the world in 2020. In this episode, we're going to look at what should our weight be in China in our stock portfolio. There's definitely some pros and cons to investing in China. And that's what this member was trying to figure out. Well, what what should his weight be in China? In 2020, the Chinese economy officially grew 2.3%, some of its weakest annual rate of growth, but the best in the world. 
Now, there's always some controversy regarding how accurate are the official economic statistics in China. I subscribe to Capital Economics, which produces something called the China Activity Proxy, and it's an estimate of economic growth using different metrics that they have much more confidence in, and they show that the economy grew close to 7% in the fourth quarter, up from 4.9% in the third quarter. This is on an annualized basis. Chinese GDP, its gross domestic product, the measure of what it produces, its output of goods and services, has been growing faster than many areas around the world for over a decade. And as a result, the Chinese economy is getting to be a larger percentage of overall global GDP. In China, and this is data from Moody's, referenced in an article in the Wall Street Journal, China in 2010 made up 10% of world GDP. The U.S. in 2010 was 23.2% of global GDP. At the end of 2020, China had grown to 16.8% of global GDP, while the U.S. has shrunk to 22.2%. So China added six percentage points the U.S. lost 1%. As I mentioned, the Chinese economy grew in 2020, and one reason it grew was because of Americans that were stuck in their homes and weren't able to travel and go out to eat and instead bought goods off Amazon and other stores. And as a result, exports from China surged. In November, Chinese exports grew 21.1% compared to the prior month, and exports to the U.S. grew 46%. Despite all the trade war rhetoric, new tariffs, individuals continue to purchase things that were made in China, and many U.S. companies continue to make a lot of their things in China. That growth in exports certainly helped the Chinese economy. The other thing that helped the Chinese economy recover is day-to-day -day life has generally returned to normal. The country was able to better control the coronavirus. And as a result, people are back driving their cars. They're taking public transportation. China is not COVID-free. This past week, on one day, they recorded 210 new COVID cases, the highest since March. But only 210 compared to the thousands and thousands of new COVID cases confirmed each day in the U.S. The Chinese economy has rebounded because all that manufacturing of those exports has allowed migrant workers, which make up about a third of the workforce, to take their jobs again. And so incomes are growing in China, and they're also benefiting because during the early months of the pandemic, the Chinese increased the amount that they were saving. Chinese households increased their savings rate. Now they appear more willing to spend that savings on buying goods and services, and that has helped propel the Chinese economy forward. There's a difference between the size of the Chinese economy and the size of the Chinese stock market. There's a measure of the size of a stock market known as stock market capitalization. It's calculated by taking the number of shares outstanding and multiplying it by the price of those shares. For the Chinese market, that would include 
A shares that are traded locally in China would include shares of Chinese companies that are listed in Hong Kong. If we look at that calculation, that total stock market capitalization as a percent of GDP is 67%. The highest it's ever been was 153% in 2007, and that's right before the Chinese stock market sold off. If we compare that 67% to the U.S., its stock market capitalization relative to GDP is 189%. It's the highest since the year 2000. U.S. stocks are more expensive than Chinese stocks, and there are just more companies that are more highly valued. A greater percent of production in the U.S. economy is from companies that are publicly traded. Just because a particular stock market as a percent of GDP is higher than another country's doesn't mean that the country with the lower amount is, is cheaper. In this case, it is, but that doesn't mean the Chinese stock market is cheap, and we'll look at that. Chinese stock market is expensive. It's just there's not as many publicly traded companies. But still, we have to wonder, China is the second largest country in the world, makes up 16.8% of the world's economy, yet its stock market's only 5% of the MSCI All-Country World Index, a global stock market index. Meanwhile, the U.S. economy is 22.3% of the global economy, but it's 57% of the global stock market. Something just doesn't seem right about that. And that's what this member from Switzerland was trying to figure out. Well, what, what should the weight be? Should my overall Chinese weight be 16% or should it be closer to the 5% as represented in the index? The solution would seem to be we should at least add a higher allocation to China. The economy is doing better. They've been able to control COVID. Why wouldn't we add more to China? Well, there's, there's a number of reservations that I have and others have. External political issues, including the trade war. Second is the antitrust push by Chinese officials within China. The third is valuations of the Chinese stock market. And the fourth is longer-term political and economic challenges. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. 
Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. On November 12th, 2020, the Trump administration issued an executive order on, quote, addressing the threat from securities investments that finance communist Chinese military companies. The order said that there's a national strategy in China called military civil fusion and that the People's Republic of China is increasing the size of the country's military industrial complex by compelling civilian Chinese companies to support its military and intelligence activities. The executive order says that while these companies are ostensibly private and civilian, they are supporting the PRC's military, intelligence, and security apparatuses. And at the same time, it goes on to say that these companies raise capital by selling securities in the U.S. to U.S. investors and that trade on the public exchanges, both in the U.S. and abroad. That these companies lobby U.S. index providers to include their securities in these indices so that ETFs and index funds will purchase them. The executive order says in that way, the PRC exploits United States investors to finance the development and modernization of its military. As a result, it said on January 11, 2021, that the U.S. Treasury Department would list out which of those securities are supporting the military and they would be delisted. They would not be allowed to be sold in the U.S. They would have to be removed from U.S. base indices the Treasury Secretary would have the ability to list those out, which he did. At the end of the year, there are 35 companies, including three major ones, China Mobile, which makes up 1.1% of the MSCI China Index, China Telecom, and China Unicom. As a result, index funds and other active managers started selling those companies at the beginning of the year. China Telecom stock was down as much as 31%, China Mobile down 23%, and China Unicom down 21%. Now they've rebounded, but one of the challenges of investing in China is a government can tell you that you can't invest in certain companies if they are purportedly supporting the military or other actions that one's home country doesn't agree with. That causes some uncertainty when it comes to Chinese stock investment. Potentially, it's true. In which case, do we feel good about purchasing those particular stocks, even if it's part of an index fund? A second concern is the Chinese government has been pushing back against some of the larger tech companies that make up a big proportion of the Chinese stock market. Ant Group is a very large company founded by Jack Ma. It was expected to go public 
at a valuation of $300 billion last November. The Chinese government shut down the IPO after Jack Ma spoke at a conference in Shanghai in October and was critical of the government. The Chinese government has put together some very strong antitrust rules that seeks to limit some of the power of these big tech companies, Alibaba, Tencent Holdings, and their stocks have sold off. That could continue and put downward pressure on the Chinese stock market. I mentioned the Chinese stock market is expensive. If we look at Chinese stocks, the average price-to-earnings ratio going back to 1995 is 15. Today, it's 20.2, the most expensive the Chinese stock market has been since 2010. The average dividend yield today is 1.4%, the lowest since 2008. The average dividend yield is 2.4%. We've discussed on this show what drives stock market returns. It's the cash flow as represented by the dividend yield, how that cash flow is growing over time, and any changes to what investors are willing to pay for that cash flow now versus the future. And that is represented by the price-to-earnings ratio, which is at its highest level since 2010. Now, the Chinese stock market relative to the U.S. stock market is about its average that it's been over the past five years. But the U.S. stock market's expensive. We do a monthly investment conditions and strategy report of money for the rest of us plus. Asset class valuations for the stock market are red. They're bearish because of the very high valuations, because corporate profits have fallen while the stock market has rebounded. Hopefully, corporate profits will rebound and reduce some of that valuation pressures, but that's just the reality that we're facing right now. Increasing your allocation to Chinese stocks, given this antitrust crackdown, the political situation with the U.S., the trade war, the delisting, and high valuations can cause us to pause. And then there are the longer-term economic issues. Developments we talked about with China in past episodes, the credit-fueled growth, massive borrowings to build buildings. We've seen evidence recently of bond defaults and excesses in property sectors that the Chinese government is trying to reduce some of the stimulus and reduce some of the excesses now that the economy has begun to recover. There's human rights issues. Just today, the last day of the Trump administration, they accused the Chinese government of committing genocide and crimes against humanity through its repression of the Uyghurs and other Muslim ethnic minorities in the northwest region of China. As an investor, how do you separate what a government is doing versus private companies that operate in that country? An economy that is a strange mixture of top-down planning and bottom-up entrepreneurialism. For many years, there was this idea that, well, China will eventually become more democratic. But it hasn't in the traditional sense. And yet, its economy is growing. This, this is not a purely communist, top-down, planned socialism. There are certainly inefficient state-run enterprises. 
the banking system is primarily controlled by the government, but then there are a lot of shadow banks that provide credit. It is a complex economy. And as investors, we don't have any special insight as to what's going to happen. How bad are the excesses within China in terms of the amount of credit growth? And there's the moral issue. Should we be investing in China at all? I don't have a good answer to that. The size of the Chinese allocation within the stock indices, 5% seems a little out of whack given the size of the Chinese economy being the second in the world. But there's things that cause me to pause. The human rights violations, the evaluations, the political and trade disputes, both externally between the U.S. and China, as well as internally within China. Perhaps one approach, if you feel comfortable with the political and some of these human rights issues, is to make some incremental changes. Add a China A-share ETF. For U.S. investors, iShares has the MSCI China A ETF, ticker is CNYA. There's also the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF, VWO. That's 41% allocated to China. That VWO has 1,100 China A-share stocks. In that ETF itself, there's over 4,000 holdings. I believe the iShares MSCI China A ETF has roughly 400 holdings. So perhaps take an incremental approach. That tends to be what I like to do. And I actually own VWO, the Vanguard Emerging Market Stock ETF. I wish I had a more definitive answer for you in terms of what to do, but we know where we stand, underweight relative to the size of the economy, but also some serious concerns regarding valuations and the political and economic environment, while recognizing China did do better with regard to dealing with COVID and how quickly their economy rebounded than any other country in the world. We'll leave it at that. That's episode 328. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my Insider's Guide email list. This is an email I send to listeners where I preview that week's podcast episode, include the show note links, and share an article on money, investing, and the economy, as well as other valuable content. It's free, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Second, if you would like some additional guidance in building and managing an institutional quality portfolio, Money for the Rest of Us Plus can help you with that. Money for the Rest of Us Plus gives you access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. There are model portfolio examples that will help jumpstart your investing. You can see how I'm investing and in all the trades that I make, and you get access to video lessons that will help you step-by-step step to create an investment portfolio that will help you achieve your financial goals. You can learn more about Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. 
This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.